0: Dr. John Sylvester, uh, radiation oncologist with 21st century oncology, doing brachytherapy now since the mid-1980s. We have Dr. Brad Prestige, radiation oncologist, doing brachytherapy since mid-1980s.
1: Mm-hmm. Dave Marshall, um, radiation oncologist, been doing brachytherapy since 90s. In the 90s? Yeah, late
0: 90s. Very good. So, we're going to talk about you know how do we grow the number of physicians practicing brachytherapy industry wide, and to start with uh, just our own experiences on how we got into brachytherapy. and And uh, Brad, why don't you go ahead and start?
2: Well, mine was uh, was a simple way. It was just because it was uh, part of my residency program. You know, we, I, I trained at Stanford, and at the time there was a big brachytherapy uh, business uh, business there, and a couple of uh, faculty that were really interested in it Don Goinette being the main one um, so his interest kind of rubbed off on me and that's where I, my initial interest was but um, so we did we did cases then but in those days it was kind of predated the the ultrasound based um, implants like we do today it was it was open you know retro pubic uh, procedures and um and then we did a couple cases just before I left, and then so most of my experience and training really came after that. And I spent a lot of time uh, visiting other sites. And, you know, yours was one in Seattle um, where they were doing a lot of uh, starting to do cases. There wasn't a lot of sites at that time, but um, and over the years, I still enjoy that. I still like going to watch experienced brachy therapists do the, do the procedure because I I always learn a little bit from it. And Dave. Um, for me, too, it was a residency training. Um, we had
1: a very active prostate brachytherapy program at the University of Florida when I was training with Bob Slotecki, who uh, was my mentor. Um, and then, um, as I said earlier in my career, I uh, worked with uh, Richard Stock at Mount Sinai and saw his uh, real-time approach, which was novel to me at the, at the time. And uh, I, I thought it was a great way to uh, to treat prostate cancer. So then when I came to the um, yeah, Medical University of South Carolina, I started that uh, approach there and been doing it there ever since.
0: Right. And, and mine, it was, it was different than either yours because at UCLA, they were dead set against prostate brachytherapy back in the, uh, in the early, mid-'80s. And um, we did a lot of anal cancer, brachytherapy, had neck brachytherapy, but uh, had no uh, prostate brachytherapy unless we spent time, and so went to uh, work with Syed for a month, so did a lot of the open implants with him, and then Michael Steinberg did some implants as well, but again, it was all open, but back then, nobody's doing trust-guided, uh, except that um, the, the Seattle group, I was connected with through a friendship, and um, so I went up there as a resident uh, to do a couple weeks as uh, as an elective, and got working with uh, Blasco and Grimm, and you know, that's, they were cranking out the implants like mad. They just started just right before, and found that this looks like this is going to work really well, and spent another month doing that. And I think, in a way, it may be kind of what we're dealing with now with residency programs. Because a lot of the resident programs aren't training much brachytherapy, as we heard this morning. So I'm not part of uh, really a university doing uh, any residence uh, training, but uh, are either you involved with residents, training
1: residents? Right. I'm at an academic center. We have a resident training program, and and all my residents get a lot of experience with prostate brachytherapy. Um, I think it is limited, though, to you know, not even every academic site, obviously. So um, we saw a presentation today at the ABS meeting that there are fewer and fewer uh, opportunities for residents to to learn to do uh, brachytherapy. So it's definitely a problem that we uh, have to be cognizant of and try to develop some uh, approaches to mitigating that
2: problem. And we're, you know, I'm in a community hospital setting, so um, there's no program per se, but we do have requests, and, and we do have residents spend a month or so with us, usually several a year. Great. So
0: that's, that, your program in particular, Dave, will help a lot of residents. Uh, on my side, I have a rare resident come by and, and spend a few weeks doing brachytherapy, but um, nationwide, what we suggest we do, in terms, especially after hearing the presentation this morning from the resident from City of Hope, what do you, what do you recommend we we do in terms of trying to get the academic centers at powers that be increased brachytherapy
1: experience? I think it's the data. I think we've got to present the data. I think we have to make people aware of the data, the randomized trials like Ascend RT and the RTOGO232. I mean, I think these are, that. that's what radiation oncologists have always been able to use to uh, show the benefit of what we do. So we need to, you know, we need to um, Prominently display that the results of those and other, you know, uh, randomized uh, trials that exist, and then the long-term data from single institutions that also support the excellent outcomes with brachytherapy. And and I think that uh, that that's our job as academicians, especially, is to make sure that our residents know about that data. I know that that has increased the randomized trials. Uh, Publication of of the ASCEND-RT trial and RTOG 0232 in limited fashion have resulted in uh, an increase in brachy volume at my institution, for example, because I can tell patients, yeah, this is better. So I think we can use the data to support what we need to do.
0: Now, some institutions, though, are going to say that um, the ASCEND-RT trial shows no survival advantage but does show significant increased toxicity with brachytherapy. And so how would you combat that discussion?
1: Well, I can talk to the patients and tell them there's a 20%, an absolute 20% improvement in the cancer not coming back. And I think that's worth a lot in prostate cancer when it takes at least 10 years of follow-up to show a survival benefit. So to me, it's follow-up. I think that probably we will see some survival benefit for those higher-risk patients in the ASCEND-RT trial once we get that long-term follow up. Look at the post prostatectomy uh, adjuvant trials, you know, it takes 12, 13 years before you see that survival benefit he got. So I think 20 points of biochemical relapse-free survival is a big improvement in outcomes. And a lot of my patients believe that may be worth a little bit more toxicity, even if you think that that toxicity that they reported would be common with the implants that you or I would do. uh, I think that a lot of patients will take that, right. And and of course, the other thing is
0: we can educate these these centers that are kind of anti-brachytherapy. The fact that if you do have a biochemical failure, the vast majority of these guys are treated with antigen ablation the rest of their life, and you got to take that toxicity Absolutely. into account. And they didn't take that into account at all in these discussions against brachytherapy. It's a huge quality of life impact. Yep. yeah that's huge.
2: It, the other thing about the Cintar T is I explain sometimes people don't understand this, but if you talk to the authors of the randomized Canadian trial, they'll tell you that those patients uh, are on their learning curve. So, the, you know, because something like urethral strictures, which was comprised about half of the GU complications um, in that series, uh, is a late effect. It's something that happens, you know, about beyond five years typically, um, and that's what happened. Is that some of their patients that they treated early on, they didn't recognize the importance of keeping the dose at the apex and beyond the apex down. So it was a technique-related thing that they learned and and changed in the, in the course of the of their experience as it evolved. But it wasn't until toward the end of that trial they started doing that. So, so what I tell people is, I think that you know, you, you, it points out to me that how important technique is, and that you, if you're really careful with your technique that you should be able to avoid a lot of the toxicity that was that was found on that in the trial. Plus, that
0: toxicity, as you mentioned, urethral strictures, most of those were fixed with a few dilations. Right. And it wasn't a, a long-term chronic toxicity. That was a lot lower. That was down closer to 8%. It was uh, a temporary toxicity that they just carried on when they did their calculations actuarially. Mm-hmm. So. People take a first look at that trial and they think, yeah, biochemical reaction survival is better. The toxicities work, they don't realize most of that was a long term toxicity. And that those that failed external beam end up on hormones rest or like. So yeah. the toxicity argument could be flipped back into uh, perhaps an advantage of brachytherapy, plus you got less recurrence going on. Then... Um, Getting to other issues with brachytherapy and, and uh, some things that, that make patients not want to get brachytherapy, there's various misconceptions out there. So what do you, what do you think some of the misconceptions are out there that um, decrease the desire for doctors to do brachytherapy on patients or operate, say urologists in particular?
2: I think one common one that I come across is urologists telling patients that they, if they have brachytherapy and it fails, that there's no salvage opportunities other than hormone therapy, and uh, that's that's just a false statement. I mean, it, it, so I, because I think it's a, it's not a very compelling argument, but it is an argument, and some people I think get convinced not to do it because they they're afraid. They're told that if they have surgery and it fails, they could then have radiation externally, but if they have brachytherapy and it fails. They're stuck. There's no options. But what I tell my patients is, number one, good brachytherapy rarely fails in the prostate. That's the most important message. It doesn't fail in the prostate very much. You can have patients fail, but they're usually not in the volume of the target. They're elsewhere in the pelvis or elsewhere in the body. Um, Number two is there's there's a myriad of options available uh, before you get to hormone therapy that you could consider, external beam being one even prostatectomy. There's not a lot of experienced uh, urologists in the country that do many salvage prostatectomies. But one of the reasons is because, like I said, brachytherapy usually works in the prostate. So, um, but you have to go to a, you know, a center of excellence that has a, a big experience because there aren't that many around. So I tell in my community, there, there are no urologists that do salvage prostatectomy, but I do know urologists around the country that do them, if, if that were to come up. And we have... Um and,
1: and very good cryotherapy for salvage program um, at our institution. And so, you know, there, as you said, there are a variety of, of, uh, of salvage uh, treatments. Uh, if you have radiation, they're just different than the salvage treatments that you have if you have surgery first. Um, and we were pretty successful at that at our, our institution. We work very well with the same close, tight group of urologists. And so they are aware of each other's expertise. And the, one of them is, uh, that does seed implants with me also does cryo, so he can talk to patients about those options interchangeably um, to discuss the salvage uh, you know, one way or the other.
0: Exactly. And we've done the exact same thing. If somebody has a failure after reiki therapy in the prostate, which is really exceedingly rare to have that as an isolated failure, um, I'll send them out of state or at least up north quite a ways to get their, their surgery at, from one of just literally three guys in the country that I'll send them to. And they appreciate that. Patients appreciate that. But also, if it's a vocal recurrence, then we have several guys that have a lot of experience with cryotherapy, and that's worked out quite well. Toxicity really has been pretty low with the, as long as it's not whole gland, yeah. cryotherapy.
2: Yeah, I think your, your options actually it's the opposite of what a lot of urologists will lead patients to believe. I think your options are more limited if you fail a prostatectomy. You really have external beam and that's it, you hormones. But when you, if you fail in the prostate after radiation, it was break your external beam. You've got other modalities of radiation. You still have a prostate, you still have a target. That's why cryotherapy is an option, right. why surgery is still an option, why other types of radiation are an option uh, if you need it. Exactly.
0: And that, that gets to another point. You, you get these patients that come a couple of year that really are not candidates for external beam because of prior radiation or ulcerative colitis or, or something, and, and, but they got pretty high-risk disease. And so the urologist wants to do radical prostatectomy, but you know that guy's going to need beam afterwards. What if you just do a bigger monotherapy brachial implant instead? And so, I mean, our local urologists understand that. They're okay with that. But I think a lot of other ones that don't have a lot of experience with breaking are not. And so
1: thinking about the next step, what you got to deal with down the the line does come up sometimes. And we have options for those patients now that we didn't have that long ago with the spacer devices. For example, you have somebody with active uh, inflammatory bowel disease. You can use a spacer and you can do a full implant. And um, have very low risk of, of bowel toxicity in those patients. Whereas, as you said, if they take the prostate out and then you have to irradiate, you're stuck. Those patients are in a bad position.
0: That's right. So, in your mind, what do you think is most needed to increase the utilization of prostate LDR brachytherapy? I
2: think it's multifactorial. I think we've touched on some of the reasons already. I mean, training—we need to. Do more and better training uh, in the residency and then and subsequent to residency. We didn't really talk about that, but there are resources um, in the field that, uh, where people can get experience that they may be lacked in, in training, in formal training. Uh, the other is just education, is just getting the data out in front of the right people, in front of the make sure the urologists, you know, we, we're not very good about getting a lot of our data into the urology literature. And um, the, the degree to which we can educate our urology colleagues as well as you know, straight to the patient, um, I think that that's going to help. Um, but I think the biggest help is going to be, I've been saying this for a long time, is, is the change in reimbursement. If bundled payments come through, which they're starting to in parts of the country. Uh, that levels a playing field in terms of reimbursement for a procedure, and I think that's going to really favor the most cost-effective treatments and we all know from lots and lots of studies that, that brachytherapy is the most cost-effective way to treat prostate cancer. So that's, that's where I think it's really going to help. And I, I think, you know, for, for right or wrong, good or bad, bundle payments are, um, I think they are going to be a good thing for brachytherapy.
0: I, I agree. And, and, you know, with the urology groups out there, there's, there's the um, large urology group, Urad programs that... Are totally tied to reimbursement with external beam, and then there are groups that are are like 21st century oncology where they're tied in as a as a multi-specialty group. So their bonuses are related to how much radiation is done, mainly external beam, and to get these groups interested in prostate brachytherapy, um, at least as far as. As far as some of them, if the urologists own their own surgical centers, they can do well by doing brachytherapy in their surgical centers, and that offsets their loss on the external beam side. Likewise, if hypofractionation becomes more and more popular, again, doing the brachytherapy, especially since most of the patients are combined modality, at least in my practice now because we're seeing more high-risk patients, that could offset their loss. Um, that they would perceive they'd have by not doing so much external beam. So I think there's a way to even infiltrate some of these groups that are really tied to reimbursement-wise to the machine to explore brachytherapy, to, to offset um, what losses they're going to have if we get bundle payment, if hypofractionation becomes more pop- you know, uh, popular, and um, if patients are educated and start demanding brachytherapy, they're going to start losing patients too. The brachytherapist.
2: I had an interesting conversation this morning at the ABS meeting uh, with a doctor from Kaiser in California and you know the rest of us are, are worrying about the declining numbers He's, Kaiser has no problem they're doing lots and lots of brachytherapy in fact more than ever and you that's know, a you look at that model it's a big you know it 's a big HMO and they want to do treatments that are most cost effective okay. that's why you see it in Canada
0: yep and and uh, other European centers where they're doing a lot of it. All right, so um, I think we've covered the training to some degree. I guess the final question would be do you see any of the powers to be at at, uh, Astro looking at changing training requirements so they have to do more cases or a fellowship program? to do prostate therapy, therapy
1: they're talking about increasing the, uh, the number we talked a little bit about that today in, in the, the meeting but right now the, um, the residency review committee and ACGME is proposed to increase it slightly not very much but slightly it's still pretty weak I mean, it's very weak when seven interstitial it, cases of any type and it do doesn't prostate. have to be prostate yeah. uh, it's, it's not enough You certainly can't come out and be proficient at it if you do seven cases and they were all prostate, even uh, as a resident. Should the ABS
0: consider doing an updating guidelines saying that somebody shouldn't be starting off doing prostate brachytherapy unless they have a certain number of cases under their belt?
2: I I think those sorts of conversations are important to have. Um, You know, there is there is several studies that show a learning curve, and you know, generally it's. It's around 50 cases, you know, and not not over 10 years, but over you know a year or so. Um, that's when people become start to become pretty proficient. So, I think there's data out there to support that kind of argument.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's the same for LDR and HDR.
2: I think HDR actually the the learning curve is maybe a little shorter, just because of the way it's done. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you need you need it's different requirements. You need. More intensive physics support on the fly, but um, but yeah, I think you know if you, if if people understand that they um, they need a minimum number of cases to to be able to perform well and have good outcomes, that's that's a message we have to get across. And I don't think it's astro or ABS. I think we have to convince uh, ACGME, um, as Dave said, um, and maybe that may not happen until you know until we get to the bundle payment you know, part of the future and realize that oh hey, all of a sudden we got we gotta do a whole bunch of breaking therapy in this country and we don't have very many enough people to do it. Right. Yeah, that's my concern. Right when we need it done. Right. Yeah. <laughs>